What's up, dealmakers? Brad here with another episode of Investor Creator, and today I want to introduce you to Avery Carl. So Avery is a full-time real estate investor and real estate agent. She's based out of the panhandle of Florida, and she is helping real estate investors gain short-term rental knowledge and be able to invest their money into short-term rentals and to create more and more passive income. And what she's doing is really interesting. She's taking her short-term rental income and taking that and basically parlaying that into long-term rentals. So she's building a portfolio of doors really, really quickly. I was really inspired with her conversation with me. And I learned a lot of things that I didn't know when it came to short-term rental investing. And you're going to want to listen to the idea of people being scared by the bears. So there's a story that she has. I'm sure that anytime you deal with the general public, you're going to have these kinds of stories. But her favorite story in terms of the most outlandish and most difficult tenant that she's had. So really interesting. So without further ado, here's Avery. That's my strategy is investing in the short terms, taking all the cash flow and reinvesting to scale more quickly. I understand why there's a lot of limiting beliefs about needing a property manager, but there's really no reason that I can think of that you should ever need to show up to your short term rental. actually seeing in the markets that I own stuff in a boom in both in Florida and in Tennessee because people want to go on vacation and they want to be in control of their environment. A lot of people get caught up in taking every single guess and like they have a scarcity mindset and if you buy in the right market you don't have to worry about scarcity. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Avery, welcome to Investor Creator. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So the first thing I want to get into is really your background. So what were you doing pre-real estate and what got you involved in the business to start? Pre-real estate, I was a marketing manager in the music business and uh, what really got me started was when my husband and I moved to Nashville from uh, New York City. And the agent that we had at the time was really trying to get us to buy in this quickly appreciating hip area of Nashville. But we were really sick of neighbors coming from New York. So we bought something out in the country. But we thought, oh, well, you know, maybe we should buy one of those and just rent it and see what happens. And we didn't know anything about real estate investing. We didn't know that investing based solely on appreciation, like that's a bad idea. <laughs> but um, luckily that one ended up being a really great one for cash flow, and we still have it. And uh, as soon as we got that first rent check, we thought, oh man, we need to really build this and do something 
and make this bigger. So we had about one down payment worth of capital left. And we thought, okay, how can we invest this to make the most money possible so that we can scale as quickly as possible? And we thought, how about a short-term rental? But we didn't want to do that in Nashville because the regulations are just really, really crazy there. So we went a few hours east to the Smoky Mountains in Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg. What's cool about that market is that most everybody, when they vacation there since the 70s, they rent privately owned properties on an overnight basis and not hotels. There's very little hotel presence. So we didn't have to worry about that regulation factor. And uh, again, we had no idea what we were doing and just dove right in and it ended up being really successful. So we scaled that into five over the next two years in Gatlinburg. And um, we take all that really heavy cash flow. We decided our strategy for real estate investing is all the short-term rental cash flow and pouring that back into whether it's more short-term rentals or long-term rentals. We have 32 units now, only six of them are short-term rentals. Everything else is more traditional like duplexes and single families. So uh, that's, that's my strategy is investing in the short terms, taking all the cash flow and reinvesting to scale more quickly. And I realized as we were purchasing the first couple that none of the agents in the area could really answer my questions about return on investment and occupancy rate and things like that. And uh, so I became that agent. I bridged that gap and uh, have grown my real estate team. It's called the short-term shop to three states, three markets. So we're in the Smoky Mountains. We're in the Panhandle of Florida. So Dustin, Panama City area, and then also Gulf Shores, Alabama. And what we do besides the regular real estate agent stuff is we train all of our clients on how to manage their short-term rental from their smartphone, from wherever they live so that they don't have to pay a manager a big chunk of their income. And they can take all of that and really bootstrap and move it into other investments and scale their portfolio as quickly as possible. You know, that is so needed. And it's something that even on the, the investing side on what we do, which most of what we do is we create owner financing. And we're really in the note business, but the house is a means to an end. But there are very few realtors that understand anything except for that you know, traditional owner-occupied purchase and sale and so anytime that we can get an agent that understands something of anything in terms of what a good deal might look like, I mean, that is just super, super valuable. So kudos to you on that. One question that I have, managing something remotely. So kind of give us the pros and cons on hiring management that's in place local to that area versus taking it on yourself. Okay, sure. So in my experience, at least in the markets that I'm in that have been vacation rental markets for decades, so well before Airbnb, even the internet, is that the local management companies are sticking to what worked for them when it was kind of what I call the golden age of vacation rental managers, which is the 80s and 90s, when there was all this inventory of second homes and rental properties, but the only option for the owners was to put it with these local management companies. A lot of them are sticking to those processes and they refuse to keep up with the technology basically. And also the technology that's putting them out of business, which is Airbnb and VRBO. So a lot of times they are relying solely on traffic from their website, their independent website. A lot of times they're not doing a lot of SEO. And in 2020, that's just not how people rent anymore. They just go on Airbnb, book something. They don't search Destin property management companies and then scroll through. So a lot of times those local guys are not only not marketing the property properly, uh, but because of that, 
their numbers are going to be significantly lower than what they would be if they were. And then the standard for the smaller local companies is between 20 and 40% of your gross income. So, you know, depending on the size property you get, that could be a down payment on another property that you're paying someone to do a gig that's the equivalent of answering a few text messages a day. So I recommend self-management. I mean, it's pretty easy. It's just downloading a few apps on your phone, setting up a couple automation systems, and really just building. All you need is a cleaner and a handyman to start out, and you can build the rest of the team out from there. If you don't have you know, somebody like me who's walking you through the process and connecting you with those people, it's really only about 30 minutes worth of work a week per, you know, for one property. So um, it's pretty easy to do. I understand why there's a lot of limiting beliefs about needing a property manager, but there's really no reason that I can think of that you should ever need to show up to your short-term rental. That's really interesting because I've looked at the short-term rental market as being something that I may want to move into. And it's really been something that has held us back on it because that 20 to 40% fee and guys, remember that's not a profit. They're not profit sharing with you. That's chunk off the top. I mean, that's, that's top line revenue that they're taking. So, I mean, we take 40% of the revenue off of a property. I mean, that, that's significant. I mean, I would say it'd probably be pretty tough to cash flow after that. So let's take a, a kind of basic example. Two o'clock in the morning, let's say the electricity goes out or the heating and air goes out. And so how does someone contact, who do they contact and how does that process work whenever you're self-managing? Like what's best practices with this? Sure, sure. So when you're self-managing and something like that happens, it's just a phone call, just like it would be if something in your own house breaks. Generally, what, what I personally do is I have three or four different handy people. And when something happens, like a toilet breaks or what have you, I'll call the first guy, my favorite one, and say, hey, can you go do this? And if you can't get to it right then, then I'll just scoot down to the next person on the list. And whoever can get out there first gets the gig. It doesn't happen as much as you would think that you have to send handy people out there, but you know, it's going to happen. You know, it's going to interrupt your dinner at some point. Yes. But is it a situation where people are going to be calling you nonstop all night, every night? No, I've only had probably one or two middle of the night reach outs, which I did not respond to or see. And neither thing was anything that I could have handled had I been awake at midnight. So it's, you just make a phone call just like you would if it was in your own house. Very cool. So the person that's your handyman, do you pay them a premium for their service to drop what they do and go out there? Or is it, you know, just basically a standard fee? It's a pretty standard fee, but the markets that I'm in, you know, they being a handyman for short-term rentals has been a like an industry for a while. So they all kind of charge the same prices. My guy charges a $40 call fee. So if he has to go out there and just do something really quick, like change a light bulb, it's just 40 bucks. But if he has to spend some hours doing something, then it'll be 40 bucks plus an hourly rate. So it's not terribly expensive. No, that makes sense. So let's talk about markets. So the three markets that you're in are very standard vacation areas. And I do have friends that have short term rentals. And some of them are in areas that I never thought would be good for short term rentals, like they may be the first person doing daily rentals in a town of maybe 30,000 people. And it's a town that no one would know if I said it on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So do you see that these kind of anomalies happen in the short-term rental market? And is that a good idea to try? Or do you really feel like, hey, you know, these vacation areas are tried and true across decades and decades of time. We want to stick where we know the model works. 
I recommend sticking where, you know, the model works. There's always going to be somebody who has something in some weird place that makes some crazy amount of money, but that doesn't mean that you're going to also, if you go invest out there. So I recommend sticking to the regional drivable vacation markets that have established short-term rentals for a long time. And it's not a new thing as of the past 15 years when Airbnb came around. Like metro markets, I don't really recommend. A lot of people invest in short-term rentals in metro markets and they're really successful. But to me, that makes me very nervous because metro markets are historically hotel towns. Mm -hmm. And the hotel lobbyists are really what's behind all of the short-term rental regulations being really volatile. I mean, everybody's heard of like Nashville's a really bad one uh, for short-term rentals. And uh, everybody's heard some story about their town not wanting short-term rentals around. And that's, it's usually the, the hotel lobbyists that have that, that issue. And then also in terms of just being recession resistant, the drivable markets have historically and now in coronavirus done much better than metro markets and then the big fly to vacation markets like Hawaii and Orlando, just because right now people want to get out of their houses, but they don't want to go on a flight and they don't want to go to big metro areas and be around a lot of people. What they are doing is taking drive vacations, you know, five to eight hours from their house where they can control their travel environment by driving in their car. Mm -hmm. And then they get there and they stay in a short-term rental. So we're actually seeing in the markets that I own stuff in a boom in both in Florida and in Tennessee, because people want to go on vacation and they want to be in control of their environment. So it's actually, we're seeing higher prices per night than we've ever seen due to coronavirus here. That's really interesting because I know that a lot of people look at the travel industry as being decimated by the virus. And I think that's really going away. I'm sure Florida had a difficult time whenever the governor shut things down, but I mean, that's been months ago. One thing to talk about regulation risk, and this is a personal story. So I'm based out of Nashville. I'm not sure if you know that. And I bought a, a quad in Woodbine for like a hundred grand. This was maybe three or four years ago. And so Woodbine was an area of Nashville where things are transitioning pretty quickly. And you would have property where you really didn't even know it was worth because it was appreciating so fast. It was like Buena Vista, North Nashville, and Woodbine was really coming up all at the same time. And I bought this quad for a hundred grand. And I was like, oh man, this is perfect. Like I can take this and make it a daily rental. And at that time, I could have permitted it as a non-owner occupied daily rental. So I actually, I went in, I gutted it, I reframed it. And I was putting in like four separate kitchens and all of this and really making it world-class. And so I, I got it reframed and I just had a bad feeling about this deal. And then there was a crime that happened in the house and I was just like, it made it to where I didn't even want to go to the property. And so for three or four months, I just let it sit. And in that time, there was a lot of talk about like all this daily rental regulation, daily rental regulation in Nashville. And so ended up, they passed a bill in Nashville that made it illegal as a, a long-term uh, short-term rental. Right. So I think they gave it like three years or something. It would have to transition over into a long term rental. And had I done what I, I set up to do and I had been like three or four months earlier, then I would have had a real problem because I was going to pour like 120K in rehab in this deal. So I was really, really happy that sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. And I was definitely more lucky than smart on that deal. But the regulation that you have in these metro areas is just not something that I really want to take on. So I think that makes a lot of sense. So being a self-manager, you have to, I'm sure, have some crazy stories. So anytime you're dealing with the general public, you, you just have these things happen. So do you have a couple that are yeah. just kind of top of mind that, that are just funny stories that you've had happen in your career so far? 
Uh, yeah. So we have one cabin that's like maybe five minutes out of town. It's in a little cabin community. So it's, there are other cabins around, but it's on an acre lot with some woods. So it feels nice and private. And, uh, we had a guy who left us a one-star review because he felt that if a bear happened to be walking by and decided that it wanted to break into our house, that we had way too many windows for anyone inside to be able to survive. If a bear, if all of these situations came together and this bear broke in, this hypothetical bear broke into our house, that everyone inside would surely die. One star. And okay, so what did the review sound like? Because I can't imagine someone writing a review like this and it's sounding like even coherent. So like, what does that even No, it, like? it didn't. <laughs> it didn't sound coherent. Uh, he had actually mentioned it at the beginning of his stay. He was like, hey, are bears like around here? Are they, what if one breaks in? What do I do? And we were like, <laughs> well, don't call us, call somebody. And then he ended up leaving early. He said he had an emergency and uh, my husband who was running it at the time said, oh no, was it a bear? And so we were able to get that uh, that review taken down because he violated the policies of Airbnb because he called my husband, I guess I'm not supposed to cuss on your show, called him a uh, SHIT head on the, okay. pub- yeah. on the public review. So uh, that obviously, viol- you're not allowed to use profanity in the review. So we were able to get it taken down, but I kind of wish it would have stayed up because it was really funny. <laughs> well, I hope you at least screenshotted it. I think I would like yeah put that up in my office and frame it because that, that's pretty amazing. So let, let's talk about that. I mean, a lot of businesses live and die by reviews and I'm sure that the short-term rental world is the same way. So how do you create good reviews and, and how do you deal with problems where you just have like just generally crazy people? So the number one thing to remember is that there are always going to be situations where you're just not going to be able to please everybody. But what we do to mitigate that kind of stuff up front is we just ask a few questions when people book and you generally don't have to probe very far to see that somebody's going to be a bad guest. Like a partiers, well, a lot of times they'll come right out and say, oh, this looks perfect for my friend's bachelor party. And then you're like, no, sorry. And, um, you know, if people are asking a lot of questions that are very clearly stated in the listing, like they're already being kind of high maintenance. Those are the people that are going to be, if they're being this way before they even book, they're going to be that way times 10 when they're actually in the house. So if we can kind of tell if they're already being annoying, we'll say, oh, you know, we'll just answer one of their questions in the way that we know they don't want it to be answered. Like if they say, oh, you know, we have seven people. Do you think that we could fit that many And our listing clearly says five people and they keep pushing the seven people? Then we'll just say, no, I don't think you'll be comfortable. You should probably find another spot. We want you to be comfortable. So if you just kind of nicely twist it to where, to where it was their idea not to book, then they usually won't and they'll, uh, and, and you don't have to worry about the bad reviews. So a lot of people get caught up in taking every single guest and like they have a scarcity mindset. And if you buy in the right market, you don't have to worry about scarcity. So Uh, They're just like taking every booking and taking every booking, but by not taking every booking, you are mitigating the bad reviews. So you'll end up making more money by not taking every booking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whenever I'm looking to book, if there's something below a four and a half star out of five, I mean, I I really just don't even consider it. And especially if there's enough supply to where you don't have to, you know, I, I would, I could see that being a real issue. So I'm assuming that most of your bookings come from Airbnb. Is that correct? 
I would say about 85% and the other 15 are from VRBO. Wow. I, I didn't realize that there was that big of a disparity between the two. And I was really surprised because VRBO has been around for like a lot longer than Airbnb. Do you have any idea why Airbnb is like the site now and VRBO is kind of like by the wayside? In my opinion, Airbnb is just easier to use and VRBO has got a clunkier interface so I think VRBO definitely had the opportunity to be like the company, but it's honestly just their interface is, is harder to use for people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of a listing, so let's say that I decide I'm going to buy a daily rental in one of these markets. What are some best practices in terms of the listing that I can make sure that the property looks as good as it possibly can? Professional photos are the biggest one and the easiest one. And I know that sounds silly that like why would anybody not get professional photos for this well those but, cost about a hundred dollars yeah they're sure expensive you know that. yeah yeah they're expensive and drone shots are expensive but if you have some really nice photos you i mean the better photos you have the more clicks you're going to get the more clicks you get the more bookings you're going to get because people look through the photos before they even look at the location or read anything in the listing so they're already hooked if they like your photos and then they start reading the listing so Photos are of the utmost importance. It really is amazing to me that someone would invest in a property and then be concerned about the cost of pictures. That right. is a big driving force in whether they're property books or not. Let's talk about average deals. So I, I don't know if there's a certain deal that you really enjoyed that is one of your better deals, or maybe we can talk about an average deal that either you've done or that you've helped someone do. But like, what does an average deal look like in these markets? So there's a, a few more moving parts than just, you know, buying a regular long-term just because there's things you have to work around because most of the properties in the markets that I'm in have either been a second home previously or been a rental previously. So they're all going to come furnished. By the way, uh, furniture cannot go on a real estate contract. It has to be a separate private property bill of sale because furniture is not real estate. If you're getting a loan and you have furniture on the contract, it really screws underwriting up. So mm -hmm. we have to navigate that because in my markets anyway, the furniture just comes extra for a dollar as is. It's not a negotiation point, but some clients will get in and get to their inspection period and say, oh, this bed is broken. I want $2,000 the purchase price, but we can't do that. So you have to navigate the furniture. You also have to navigate if it's an active rental, uh, you have to navigate scheduling the inspection around the current bookings, which can be a little bit challenging because a lot of times they're in a 14 day inspection period, there might only be two four hour windows where the inspector can go inspect. So that's a little bit challenging. Um, Another thing that comes up a lot is if it has been a, a rental and it is an active rental, the transferring of bookings to the new owner, I always recommend not for owners not to go go down that road because we just have so much tourism here that they're going to get booked. If they do their listing right, they're going to get booked immediately right out of the gate. And a lot of times the trying to transfer ends up being just a pain. The guests... If it's an active Airbnb listing, the only way to transfer is for the previous owner to cancel them and send the new owner's Airbnb listing to them for them to rebook. So they already are going to come into the new owner's property a little annoyed that they've already had to rebook. Might make them a little more sensitive to other items in the house that not necessarily would have been before. So it can affect your bookings. And what else? Um, 
that's pretty much it. Uh, and then you can, you can run into some analysis issues if the property has been mismanaged and is maybe underperforming and they have those numbers on the listing. A lot of times investors will stop at those numbers and just take them at face value and say, okay, well, these numbers don't work rather than taking a few steps further and saying, analyzing the manager as well. Like, are they properly utilizing technology or are they just a little mom and pop deal that have no visibility on the internet? Those kind of things make a huge difference. So um, you definitely want to always take those few steps further and don't just take rental history at face value when you're investing in these also. That's really interesting. And I'm sure that what you do is kind of play detective with the numbers and it's like, okay, if I was managing this thing myself, then what would that look like in comparing the two? So when you're doing your due diligence in the process of purchasing, are there some red flags that you really look for or there's some conditions in terms of like the condition of the property or anything like that to where it's like, it's a hard no, like I'm not going to do this deal? Um, in the markets that I am in, there's other than just like major, major inspection items, there's not much that will make me just say absolutely not unless there's some kind of contractual obligation to stay with the current manager for a certain period of time after closing. I will not do that. But other than that, it's all pretty, pretty straightforward. Interesting. Interesting. Very good. I guess my last question is this. So there are a lot of people that, that have long-term rentals and they may think, well, maybe this would be better as a, a short-term rental. If they're not in a market that's one of these just A-class markets in terms of vacation history and, you know, decades of um, people vacationing in these markets, do you recommend that they try the short-term rental idea and go that route? Or is it something that's like, it may just be best as a long-term rental? I guess it just depends on the market. Uh, like a lot of my long-terms are in Chattanooga, which a lot of people uh, have short-terms in Chattanooga that they do pretty well with. I would personally never try to convert any of my long terms in Chattanooga into short terms, just even though there is there, you know, there's some vacationing going on because I just really want those really documentable tourism numbers and Chattanooga, even though it's got a little bit of that, it's still got some regulation issues. So to me, it's, I personally wouldn't bother unless it's one of those vacation markets I, I need it to be to have bit, be a mature vacation rental market in order for me to want to actually have a vacation rental there. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Guys, really appreciate Avery being with us today. Avery, for those that are interested in, in talking to you about how they can get involved in short-term rentals in these markets, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? My website, theshorttermshop.com. Email's right on there. Numbers so you can text us. We're millennials. We like texting or you can call us, but texting's better. <laughs> um, Social media, it's all right there. Very good. And guys, we'll put that in the show notes for anybody that's interested in reaching out to Avery. Avery, appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much for having me.